Well, Alex, we're gathered together for episode 117 of the self-hosted podcast. We got a lot to get into this week, so we should probably, right off the bat here, introduce our guest. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Brett. You might know him better as Raid Owl from YouTube. He describes himself as just a nerdy dude who's passionate about home lab stuff, networking, PC builds, and tech in general. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty decent uh, description I wrote for myself. So I'll take it. <laughs> we didn't even involve chat GPT in that one. So yeah. All right. Not yet. Yeah. Although one of us may be chat GPT, but we won't say who. Yeah, that's for you guys to find out. So we thought we'd talk to you today about a few things home lab related. Obviously, there's the VMware news, which we'll get into in a little bit. But before we go there, I've noticed on Twitter that you're talking about a 30 days of Linux challenge. What's that all about? I don't even know where to start with this. So last year I did a, I'm going to switch to Linux challenge uh, because I hate myself. And I did it for a week where I got rid of my uh, MacBook and my main Windows machine and used, or I, for that one, I installed, I think I used Ubuntu on my desktop and did it for a week. And at the end, I came out the other end, hating Linux as a desktop. (laughs) And of course, you know, everyone loved that. So... I said that next year I would try again and do it a little differently. So that's what I'm doing this year. I've extended the duration. It's now 30 days instead of a week. And I'm running it on a laptop instead of a desktop because uh, if I'm doing it for a month, I can't be tied down to my desktop the entire month. So here I am. On a uh, Dell XPS 15 running Linux Mint, I am th- about three weeks in now, maybe just under three weeks, and it's been something. You sound like a man who has aged in the process, if I'm honest. I, have, I used to have a lot of hair and no gray in my beard, <laughs> and... Um, I, I have no hair and lots of gray in my beard now. So so not to spoil the conclusion of the challenge, because obviously you're only three out of the four weeks into it. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, as, as a YouTuber, obviously you're doing video workflows a lot of the time. So I, I don't know, are you a, a Mac guy typically? I use a MacBook, an M1 Pro MacBook Pro uh, as my main laptop. And then I have a uh, Windows desktop that I use as my main workstation. All right. Yeah. And typically your workflow is, I'm assuming then, probably Adobe-based? Given It used to be. Uh, I'm on DaVinci Resolve now. Oh, nice. And of course, that's on Linux too. Yes. That was, I guess, convenient. Uh, I switched from Adobe to uh, Resolve last year, not because of anything Linux-related, but because Adobe has been pissing me off. So It's expensive these days. It's expensive and... Just the quality of their upgrades to Premiere have just been so mediocre. And I noticed I was getting better performance testing on DaVinci. So I said, why not just pay 300 bucks one time? Use DaVinci. It's compatible on my Windows machine, my MacBook, and uh, my Linux machine. So that part's been decent, I will say. Uh, Being able to 
use my pretty much same workflow for editing. Whereas last year I was still on Premiere Pro when I switched. So I ended up using Caden Live, which is a free uh, Linux-based video editor. And that was, I don't, it wasn't terrible, but compared to something like Premiere Pro, it was difficult. Something I just tweeted that uh, it hasn't gone as expected. Not so much because it's more difficult than I expected. It's more of I went into this this time thinking, okay, I have 30 days. I'm going to learn a lot about Linux in these 30 days. I'm going to come out the other side being, you know, up on my high horse ready to, you know, talk down to the Linux plebs. I, I'm joking. But that hasn't been the case with other videos in the works because I can't just stop making videos for 30 days. I mean, I can. This isn't my real job, but I don't want to. Other videos happening, real life things happening. And I found myself like in this last week, I haven't really learned much that I had planned. So I don't know what this video is going to look like at the end, honestly. So we'll see. we got a week left. I, I have found that one of the trickier things to do is to try to make a transition like that when you're really busy because it's it's everything is a new learning process but see it's been about a year it what's better since the last time you tried it has, has anything gotten a little bit better so last year i tried i used ubuntu um this year i'm on mint i was debating between pop os and mint uh i'm just more comfortable with debian based stuff i know Everyone out there, like it was a joke when people would ask me, you know, which distro did you go with? I would just tell them the wrong one because no matter who you ask. There's never a right answer, is there? You, you grow <laughs> a thick skin in this business after a while on that question, <laughs> I'll tell you what. I went with Mint. Uh, it felt decent. I, I was debating between, like I said, Pop! OS and Mint. Eventually chose Mint. Compared to last year, having everything working right out of the box, especially on a laptop, because I've tried Linux installed on a laptop, you know, years and years ago, probably, you know, maybe once a year since then. And I've always run into issues with like touchpad not working, Wi-Fi drivers not automatically loaded, you know, random stuff like that. There's always something. So I was fully prepared to day one just be like okay guys uh the screen only shows uh every other pixel uh i don't know what to do please help but out of the box i mean everything worked great i mean it's a relatively recent kernel that uh mint 21's on so uh it, it's you know in that aspect i'd say it's much improved maybe not since so much since last year but i'd say over the last few years how has the stability of apps been? Just just as a one quick follow-up question, is have you had application crashes? Has that been okay? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's what I live for. Application crashes. You've had those? Uh, OBS likes to so NVIDIA system? It's an NVIDIA card? Oh yeah. So the system it's a Dell XPS, uh Dell XPS fifteen ninety five thirty or something. It's got a right. I, with the NVIDIA. Yeah, with the uh RTX thirty fifty. That's a nice laptop. Um I wanted to make sure that I gave it the best chance to compress me. Yeah, the NVIDIA's the NVIDIA card is really tricky right now. We're in a we're in an awkward period there. So I noticed one thing that I I don't know if it's a mint thing or you can choose between like power profiles and it you can pick between 
only use Intel, only use NVIDIA, or this on-demand where, you know, when you launch an app, it has some way of determining if it's a graphic-intensive app and it'll use a GPU for it. I had some issues with it in the beginning, but now it's working pretty well. Um, I'm honestly surprised because one of the main issue or main fears I had going into this was that, you know, I'm used to running a MacBook, an M1 MacBook that I can get freaking like two whole days of battery life, not even think about plugging it in. This one, uh, I was so nervous about, you know, battery dying instantly. And man, I am impressed with this, you know, on-demand, you know, run Intel on pretty much everything desktop and then only using video for the stuff you need it for. Battery life has been awesome. So that's another thing that's impressed me, I will say. But yeah, crashes. Uh, OBS, I don't know if it's docking it with a Thunderbolt dock and then unplugging it, but anytime I undock it or dock it in, I have to like cross my fingers, do a little dance, uh, pray to the Linux gods that uh, my NVIDIA card doesn't just disappear or give me errors. So, (laughs) Yeah. Now, we've been chatting behind the scenes a lot about changes that are happening with VMware. One of the ways that uh, I really got my hands on VMware was through their free programs. They had ESXi free. They had Player that was free. And through that, I kind of learned a lot about the basics and then was able to go to my company and say, I think I'm actually comfortable recommending we deploy this at scale. And we ended up having a very large offsite data center with about 115 servers that uh, were all using VMware ESX I or whatever it is, whatever the expensive one was. And it all really kind of got started, though, because I was able to get my hands on the free one and experiment in my home lab. And, Brad, I'm curious if you've been following the VMware news that happened recently, but VMware's been pulling a bunch of products, including their free ESXi product, I think it is. ESXi, yep. Yeah. As a consumer, as a home labber, you know, the home lab space is very, I'd say, finicky when it comes to anything that requires money. Anytime you see something, because, you know, it's built upon, like, you know, open source and FOSS, you know, just free software, uh, building a community around that, you know, it's a big part of home labbing. So when you see any, like, bigger corporations come in and, and make these changes, especially with something that was, you know, free and, and readily available, and then paywall it, you know, that's not going to make anybody happy, especially the home lab community. I never used ESXi in a extensive, you know, environment. I've tested it a couple of times. So my direct impact is minimal, but I know people who are extremely upset about this because, you know, this is something that they deploy in their home lab. This is something they have quite a few servers running and to just all of a sudden be like, oh yeah, guess what? Um, that's, uh, you have to pay for that now is huge. And, um, one of my buddies, Rich from two guys tech did a pretty good uh, video on that about the changes to VMware and about how the switch to something like XCPNG would be. It's hard for me to sit here and say like, you know, as a business, it's not the right call. What's the right call. I'm not a business guy, but as a home lab user, I know a lot of people are not happy. Well, I'm sure they've done the calculations, right? They're following a similar model to many other big corporate mergers. You know, the the prevailing wisdom is that 
VMware makes 90% of their money from 10% of their customers. And so they're just going to double down and focus on that big 10%, those big customers that spend hundreds of millions of dollars with them every year. And the little guys actually are a rounding error. And I I guess maybe uh, those rounding errors to you and I seem like big numbers, but when you're dealing at VMware's scale, perhaps they don't. And what really, I think, for, for me, the, the most tragic part of this is that it's it's killing the pipeline. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that VMware have been great open source advocates and stalwarts or anything like that, because they haven't. But the reality is, in the business world, they were one of, if not the de facto method of running things on-premise. And it was a standardized tool that you could learn and change between different companies and say, right, I know VMware inside out and backwards. At the bank in London that I used to work at, for example, there was a guy whose entire job was talking to VMware all day, figuring out what was coming down the pipeline, implementing it at the bank. And, you know, if I said to him, right, I need to deploy... X number of OpenShift nodes next week, he'd be like, right, well, I need to call this guy for hardware and then I need to get this license in. And it was this whole complicated thing that he'd built his career around. And now I'm sort of sat here thinking, well, what's he going to do? What are all the MSPs who've been reselling VMware for the last decade plus? What are they going to do? Never mind the home labbers. I mean, they'll, they'll be all right, I think. You know, there's Proxmox, there's XP, XCPNG, there's uh, Beehive, there's flipping Libvert, you know, there's, a million different ways to run VMs in a home lab, but it's it's the people that have built businesses around it that I really feel for. Yeah, for sure. And those people, obviously, you know, they didn't have a say in this. You know, that, that that's, you know, like you said, resellers, people who, this is their business. I'm 99% sure that uh, the executives over there didn't uh, personally go up to them and ask them for permission to do this. So... No, that's that's got to be. So, what's your home lab situation? What's your hypervisor look like? Uh, I'm a Proxmox boy. I got a main Proxmox server, then I have a a three node Proxmox cluster for like my uh, super duper important high availability stuff. That's not actually that important, but I, am I detecting sarcasm there? Oh yeah, absolutely. I hope my sarcasm came through because it's uh, none of it's super important. Uh, the world will still go around if my cluster goes down, but it's fine. Hey, look, <laughs> look, dude, I'm British. We practically invented sarcasm, so I think we'll be oh, all right. Perfect. <laughs> okay, so then we have to ask, how much storage is attached to all of this? Like, if you were to just do a rough back of the uh, napkin kind of math calculation, how much storage would you roughly say is in your home network there? We just try to keep track when we have people on the show. I don't think it's anything impressive compared to what I've, even people in my Discord have a crazy amount of, of storage. But my main server... There's no shame. Yeah, my main server, so it's a Proxmox server. It's running TrueNAS and a VM. And I have all my drives passed through to theirs, and it's 12, 12 terabyte drives. So 144 terabytes. That's a, that's a solid entry in our leaderboard. I think that, so. That puts you that puts you above Jeff Geerling. Oh, man, I'll have to hit him up yeah. and say, uh, I'm ahead of him on something. Although Jeff didn't include the petabyte pie okay, in his. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> we, 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 we still hold Wendell in first place with a petabyte. Yeah, so I think, I'm, not, you know, I'm you... not close to that. I mean, if you count my backup <laughs> server too, then you're looking at like maybe another 60 terabytes. So 
All right, that's a solid entry. I'm gonna I'm gonna mm-hmm. give you two hundred terabytes. How about that? Yeah, let's let's just round it and say two hundred. That's a fair. All right, the board approves. Somebody from the audience will open a pull request on our wiki and uh, put you on our leaderboard. So that's that's pretty cool. Now I noticed in the uh, I see I see you on my YouTube feed all the time these days. I think uh, you and Hardware Haven and two two guys tech some up and coming home lab YouTubers to, to watch there for sure. But one thing that really caught my eye was your $200 home lab challenge series that you did with hardware Haven. Uh, I thought that was super interesting. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Uh, yeah. So uh, Colton from hardware Haven came to me and he was like, Hey, what do you think about something like a, uh, a um, scrapyard wars type thing? Like uh, LTT did back in the day. I was like, yeah, I'm down. Um, so we went back and forth deciding how we want to do this and eventually settled on, you know, we have $200. Let's create um, the, the the ultimate, I say ultimate, it's a little bit of sarcasm, but the ultimate home lab. So what can you do with 200 bucks? Went back and forth on how to make it, you know, interesting rather than just saying, here's 200 bucks, you know, go build whatever. So incorporated, uh, we had this little wheel to spin. So every week we'd check in and we'd have to spin this wheel to give ourselves a challenge. Um, he got hit with like, he had to build his own uh, case. Uh, he had, I think he had some ones that were actually good. He uh, he got like 10 bucks added to his budget, like straight off the bat. I got hit with that. I had to use an off the shelf NAS. Um, I had to use ZFS in my build. <laughs> what I thought was interesting was you guys bought parts and then some some other piece of the jigsaw didn't quite land as you expected. So then you resold the part and bought something else. And yeah. That was fascinating. Yeah. I think me and Colton both ran into something <laughs> similar to that where I also, my math was, was butt cheeks and I somehow couldn't do basic math. So while I'm editing, I'm like saying this is how much I have left and I'm like doing the math and I'm like, wait, that's not how much you have. So at the end I was like, I had, I went over too much and then I had to sell the part and go back and buy the cheaper version. And it was just, it was fun. Um, me and Colton have talked about if we do it again, there are some changes we'd like to do. I think, uh, the wheel was a fun thing, but we do it all at the beginning. So yeah, the wheel was really fun. We're talking like a wheel of fortune style. Uh, must use ZFS, yeah. like land, spin the wheel, land on certain things you must do as part. Of yeah, it. I think we just do it all at the beginning, so we'd have kind of like a handful of challenges to work with over the course of you know two weeks instead of because there were certain things like you know if you're on the last week of the challenge and you get hit with like must use off the shelf NAS and you already have your yeah stuff yeah, built, yeah, yeah. you can't really do it. So we'll see. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, what would be fun is uh, just to do something like that at a convention or something where people have got transportation and you're in a big city and there's a few Linux nerds around and like, what can you build for 200 bucks in a weekend? And there are five teams and, you know, yeah, that, that could be really fun. I was thinking, yeah, funny you say that because I was thinking I was at CES this year and I was like, man, the challenge would be very comical if it happened during CES where I was out there with thousands and thousands of other who could you who could you sweet talk at a booth to uh-huh. give you free stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that's it yeah. that would have been funny i've arrived with a lamborghini yeah <laughs> i turned 200 bucks into uh this lamborghini home server 
uh, <laughs> that's sponsored by Lamborghini. Well, very good. Thank you very much for joining us, Brett. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Is there anywhere in particular you'd like to send folks? Uh, just if you want to watch some home lab content, some networking, hardware, just general home lab stuff, uh, go check me out, Raid Owl on YouTube. And if you're on Twitter or X these days at Raid Owl Tweets, I'm over there as well posting. So if you like that, check it out. But I appreciate you guys for, appreciate you guys for, for having me on. It's been super fun. I love nerding out with home lab stuff. So this was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Head on over to Tailscale.com slash self-hosted and get 100 devices for free while you're supporting the show. Tailscale is the easiest way to connect your devices and your services directly to each other, wherever they are. Even if you have a complex network with some things behind NAT, some things up on a VPS, maybe you have a mobile device in the mix, Tailscale brings it all together, protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. It's easy to deploy. It's essentially zero config and you can get it up and running in just minutes. Try it out for up to 100 devices and just see what I'm talking about. Put it on a couple devices and see why I love it so much. You can build simple networks, even if you have devices all over the world. You can save time with a proven security solution that just works. So if you're in an enterprise environment and you're struggling with VPN solutions right now or remote access solutions, I have seen every kind of incarnation in enterprise. Tailscale can dramatically simplify that. There's also nice little aspects of Tailscale that make it really slick to use once you start to learn it. What you realize after using Tailscale for a while is it's really just a way for devices to communicate securely directly to each other. Something the internet should have done for us a long time ago, but has never done right. And Tailscale will punch through all the different places to make it happen and make it smooth. For example, if you have two Tailscale devices on the same LAN, they know that. And they just talk directly to each other. So you're going to get line speed there, essentially, because the tail scale overhead's minimal. But if you got a device that moves, like a laptop, and maybe now it's at your work, it'll still connect. And they'll still talk to each other like they're still on the same local LAN. It's secure, it's fast, and one of the benefits is they have it for so many different platforms. So if you're a Linux user, a Mac user, Windows user, ARM, Intel, if you're on a mobile device, if you have an appliance, you'll, you'd be amazed what there's tail scale apps for and what there, where there isn't an app. They have the ability to do subnet routing and things like that. Listeners use things like the Apple TV or Raspberry Pi just as a dedicated subnet router. It's it's really handy. So go try it out for free on 100 devices. Support the show and go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Simple, secure networks for teams of any scale built on top of WireGuard. A zero-config VPN that you'll get up and running in just minutes and it will change the way you network. It definitely has for us. tailscale.com slash self-hosted. So listener Joe writes, I wanted to bring to your attention that the Unraid CEO and now his daughter also has joined in. I know Alex is a former Unraid user, but frankly, since they've added ZFS and have added several other new staff, it's rapidly becoming a different and much more mature product. They're making a transition to be a proper grown-up company, not just for hobbyists. They've also acquired a bunch of staff from iX Systems. It's evolving into a truly different tier product, in my opinion, and especially as version 7 will be coming out soon, I think it deserves basically fresh eyes. Tom, the founder, has an interesting Linux story in general that's told here if you want to watch and listen to the full session. 
I'll put a link to the interview referenced in this comment, by the way, in the show notes down below. It's a, it's an unread podcast. It's actually it's actually pretty good. Um, at the 45-minute mark, they are talking about this bigger pivot in, and I'm talking about here, the licensing changes that we'll get into in just a second. They're going along the lines of elementary OS. Lower entry price and then pay for updates and enhancements when and if you want to stay current and with the highbrow grandfathering option for all existing license holders. Then they get into new features for version 7, rounding out the full suite of ZFS support and several very new and interesting options that I think you will both find interesting, especially, Alex, with your cross-continental needs. We're talking an API for things like Home Assistant, multi-server options, porting shares across different servers and users. It feels to me like a Linux company done right, sustainable in the right way. As I'm sure they could wave a finger and have venture capital money anytime they wanted, but specifically have issued that option. So we are, of course, talking about the licensing changes to Unraid that happened this week, uh, essentially moving to a subscription model for updates. And it seems they're going to have a starter, unleashed and lifetime. Uh, license type so three different types there but i think i do have to acknowledge the move to grandfather in existing license holders so they have a lifetime uh update guarantee that that bodes well for this transition and i think it's a smart savvy move because it creates a loyal passionate base that could go advocate their product to other people instead of starting on a bad note we've seen it many many times i mean plex is the perfect example of a lifetime pass that isn't really a sustainable model. I mean, if you bought an Unraid license, I mean, you could legitimately have bought one 15 years ago at this point. Tom and Lime Tech haven't seen another penny from you since, and they've still been working, adding staff, as we've seen, adding new features, pr- pretty impressive ones, like dual parity support, uh, ZFS, a bunch of other stuff. And it's it's really quite a good product these days for most people. There's still some things that I find a bit peculiar, but maybe Joe has a point. I haven't actually used Unraid now, getting on for seven or eight years, so it probably is worth some more attention from us moving forward. And and I think for me, just the way in which this whole thing has been handled has actually been pretty pretty good, pretty classy. Grand, grandfathering in all existing customers for lifetime updates. I mean, you're losing out on a huge chunk of what could be potential revenue there if you wanted to, you know, play the asshole and and say, right, if you want updates, we're going to give you three more years or something. I don't know. And then after that, we're going to start charging you same as everybody else. But no, this is a lifetime thing. And it's a really nice way of rewarding the people that put Unraid in the position that they're in now. And I would think if if it's true that they have some IX staff working for them, perhaps they have enterprise ambitions, and that's a much, much larger, much more lucrative market. So if they're playing the long game here, it would make sense. I've been quite surprised, actually, now I've left the Red Hat umbrella, just how many folks are running Unraid. I was speaking to engineers all the time from different companies, and they're like, oh, does it run on Unraid? You know, talking about Telscale, of course. And it's, it's a really popular product amongst not just home labbers, but developers and people that just want to store stuff in their house you know it's uh it's kind of my esxi uh, argument that you know you start with deploying it in your home lab you you use it you you create your own network effect with it and then it's sort of like the bring your own device effect at work when when the workplace starts looking for a solution well if you've got something employees are already familiar with does the job and meets your requirements that's a pretty big win and i suppose unraid fell into that category 
Isn't it weird that in the same episode we've got VMware pulling the rug and Unraid almost doubling the thickness of it? You know, like <laughs> they're, they're making the company guaranteed sustainable by doing this. So those people that have the grandfathered licenses should be, in my opinion, probably pretty happy about this because all the new people that come along are going to be supporting the development of features for them. You know, so it doesn't really affect them in the long run other than making the product more sustainable. And I think there is a there is a market fit. When I was in IT, the small business that had 50 employees or so, you know, they needed centralized storage. They wanted to run a couple of applications. There wasn't there wasn't a great solution. And FreeNAS was one of the good alternatives out there. But I think FreeNAS could use a competitor. I think it's the market's right for a good competitor to a true NAS, free NAS category. And Synologies have been pretty successful in this category too in small business. So, uh, yeah, uh, we could see it. I think, you know, maybe our friends over at 45 Drives are trying to kind of get there with the uh, that kind of stuff too. But uh, I think Unraid, with the network they already have, probably has one of the best shots. I don't know why more people aren't going after this market segment, to be honest with you. Maybe we should. <laughs> Maybe we should start a company. But there there honestly must be quite a lot of people that want to store data without having to learn the inner workings of how how you grow a neckbeard, you know, and, and, and do ZFS properly, dare I say, air quotes, some gatekeeping when I say properly, or learn BcacheFS or ButterFS or whatever the latest hotness is. They just want to click a button, click some shares, and forget about it for three years until they add a new disc or something pops, you know. Uh, and Unraid fits that bill perfectly. Well, what I find interesting as well is that this licensing model actually follows that of Blue Iris pretty closely. I think I end up paying about 35-ish dollars per year to Blue Iris now. And every time I sort of think about it when the renewal comes up, I'm like, oh, yeah. I've been running Blue Iris for another year. I haven't really thought about it. I haven't touched it. And that, for a lot of people, is exactly what they want from an appliance. And for a lot of people, that's what Unraid is. Yeah, I heard from a lot of listeners who adopted Unraid too because they made it really easy to do VM hardware pass-through for certain setups. And that was really attractive to them. Yeah, yeah. back in the day, that was actually one of the things that got me into Linux in the first place. I was running an Unraid box. I mean, I've told this story on the show before. I'm, I'm certain of it, but... I was running running an Unraid box and I wanted, because I was a poor student at the time, I couldn't afford a desktop. I could afford a GPU on its own, but not both. Uh, so I shoved the GPU into my server and started compiling Unraid on top of Ubuntu kernels and stuff and eventually sort of in that whole mess pushed, helped push the envelope forward a little bit in some small way anyway uh, to adding that feature into, into Unraid. I'm not going to claim credit for doing all the work because... LimeTech did that, but uh, it was definitely something that got me into Linux in the first place. It was sort of just, I just find it such a fascinating idea that you can take a piece of hardware and make the virtual machine think that it's not a virtual machine and it's a real, I'm a real boy, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's that's just really so cool to me. It is. It, no, it totally is. Well, okay. Well, seems like maybe there is some rug pulling going on over at F5 potentially. Mm-hmm. The core Nginx developer has forked the project into free Nginx, claiming that there's been shenanigans going on over there at F5 and they're not really taking his advice anymore. Now, this is an interesting situation because see, F5 closed, F5, who's got an office here where I live, 
closed their Moscow office in 2022 and severed their relationship with the core developer of Nginx, but then kept him on kind of as some kind of contractor with an agreement that he'd have oversight of the project and certain development things. But it seems like F5 has started to proceed and make changes that he hasn't approved and doesn't agree with. And he writes, as such, starting from today, I'll no longer participate in Nginx development as run by F5. Instead, I'm starting an alternative project, which is going to be run by developers and not corporate entities at FreeNginx or FreeGINX. I don't know exactly how we're supposed to be pronouncing it these days. .org. We'll put a link in the notes. But what's your reaction, Alex? To some degree, it was inevitable, wasn't it? Big corporate Probably. entity buys free and open source project. The goals of those two entities are at odds with one another. And so at some point in the future, unless they have some unicorn leadership that fully understands both the corporate world and the open source world as someone who gave up part of their life to create a project like Nginx does, there's going to be some disagreement at some point. It's just it's just a reality. Yeah, I'm just not clear like how and where things go now. Does the community start using this? Do Amazon and the other big cloud providers that have all of their code based on, on, on Nginx rebase, or do they keep using the F5 version? Where does the innovation happen at now? What does this mean for home labbers that use it for reverse proxy long term? I think it means not nothing for a short term. It really doesn't mean anything short term, and it is consequential long term. It's it's fascinating. You wonder about the the tectonic plates underneath acquisitions like this all the time, don't you? The things that bubble away really slowly in the background that nobody pays attention to. So the the slow undercurrents of change. And eventually there's an earthquake and all hell breaks loose for a little bit and then it settles down again. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this one, where this one uh, settle, settles. Zach wrote in with an audiobook pick. Uh, this is one that's of particular interest to me because my wife, actually, we, en- we ended up going to our local library this week. There was a, a kid's craft corner. So we took Ella to the library and she was cutting out shapes and sticking them on paper and having a wonderful old time. But while she was doing that, I sort of wandered around the library and had a look at the various sections. And it turns out uh, there are audiobooks on CDs in the corner of my local library. So I whipped out my library card and rented, borrowed, rented, borrowed? Checked out? Yeah, checked out. Margaret Atwood Testaments audiobook, uh, which is on like 14 CDs. 14 CDs? I'd forgotten how tedious ripping 14 CDs was. Oh my gosh, yeah, one CD, I'm like, not so bad, right? Yeah. Why don't they just put it on a DVD, for goodness sake? I guess it's for cars, maybe. But yeah, so you ripped it. I'm not an expert at ripping audiobooks, okay? I'm I'm, I'm good at stripping DRM from Audible books, but I haven't actually ripped a CD in a very long time. Yeah. So I fired up my Windows desktop and opened up Windows Media Player, and click the rip CD button like it was 2005 all over again. That's how you did it? Oh my goodness. So what did it put them in did it put them in WMA files or anything funky like that? Oh, you can select the codex, you know. It's pretty it's pretty advanced stuff, Chris. Like I could select my my bitrate up to 320k and MP3 okay. and Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. even the encoders even support FLAC in uh, Windows Media Player these days. Wow, credit to them. Okay. So uh, you wow! What a what a solid husband move on your part. Fourteen discs. Well, I I thought so too. I'm I'm, I'm actually waiting my Nobel Prize in the mail. Uh, I think it'll be here any day now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But coming back to the actual topic, audiobooks, uh, I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting because, you know, I've mentioned on the show that I still run Plex only for music. Plexamp, by the way, I think might be the greatest music app ever made. I am absolutely falling in love with Plexamp. I've done a bunch of work to my, my home office and, and put, put my Kef LS50s up and I'm listening to music again, not just sort of passively in the same... I'm listening and my flak farts. Anyway, I digress. Audiobooks, again. <laughs> Uh, Zach wrote in with a pick called Plappa, P-L-A-P-P-A. And he says, I've got a find here that may be interesting. It's an early test flight version of an iOS app for audiobooks, which uses Jellyfin as the backend server. All right. So this would be similar to like a prologue is to Plex. Correct. Now, what's particularly interesting is if you look at the roadmap on the GitHub page, First of all, it says the first option is an iOS app with all the basic features. Check. Next up is CarPlay support. Not checked, but coming. Then an Apple Watch app. Then a Mac app. Then an Apple TV app. How many people listen to audiobooks on their Apple TV? I don't know, but I'm, it's, it's written in Swift, so I assume the, the lift of, of putting it on those different platforms. When I saw that, I thought, you know, chores, right? And if it's synced... Maybe. If it uses iCloud, which it looks like it, it syncs playback status via iCloud, it says... So you could listen on your car and then say you want to, you, you want to do some choring and uh, you bring it up on your old Apple TV. And since you're all in on the Apple ecosystem, you got the HomePods. So then you long press on the button on the Apple TV remote. And you send it to all your HomePods throughout your whole house, synchronized audio playback, controlled by your Apple TV that you can play, play and pause from your Apple Watch as you move about. Boom. There you go. Live in the dream. Now <laughs> the Apple ecosystem dream. Pla- Plapper, I'm gonna is is it Plapper? I think it is. Is currently in closed test flight beta and its public release is set for early 2024, so any day now. But what excites me the most on this roadmap is the last item. Do you see that? Hmm. It says support for audio bookshelf servers. Oh now we are talking. now we're talking, right? Now we are talking. That's the box I want checked. Mm-hmm. Oh, an Apple Watch app too. You know, it is. <laughs> there is something really sweet. I, you know, it is actually kind of nice to see the Apple ecosystem get some self-hosting love because it feels like really it's all the funds for the Android users. But this is really neat. This is like the screenshots alone. Uh, I'm blown away by the design of the app. That's. I, I could immediately see spousal approval with this app. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really well done. If Leo Klaus, the developer, is listening and you know wants to have us do a test flight test, uh, I think Chris and I will be game. Absolutely. And also, we could let the if you would like, uh, if you'd like, very, very, very enthusiastic audiobook listeners who are average users but still quite sharp, the wives, they could do a bug report. They'll listen to five bu- five books in in a week, and they'll tell you how it's working. I mean, you know it. Now, my my wife actually just a quick plug for her thing. It's it's just a. Uh, like her version of journaling. She's actually started writing a blog at Perfect Prose. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. She wants to read at least one book a month. And she's, she's a, for the whole time I've known her, has been an absolutely ferocious reader. But since Ella came along, obviously finding time for that kind of thing has been more tricky. So she's going to try and read a book a month, write a little review on the on the blog. And uh, if, if that kind of thing floats your boat, there's an RSS feed and there'll be a link in the show notes trustebook.com slash self-hosted trusteebook.com slash self-hosted this is a simple easy to use workbook that lets you take your digital record your digital legacy 
all of your important digital stuff, take it offline. And it's really simple to get started with a great interface. And if you go to trustybook.com slash self-hosted, you'll take $10 off while you're supporting the show. Yeah, you can now create hard copies of your most important online information. This is just great for continuity planning for a family or a business, but I think it's also peace of mind. Once you have this stuff documented, you're not quite as dependent on that cloud service, and we'd all love to self-host absolutely 100% everything, but you have bank account information. There's just accounts you're going to have online that you need to have documented somewhere. So the idea with Trust eBook is you download and use it offline, so that way you feel confident that your information staying private. It's all on your system. The user-friendly design makes it super easy to pick out what you need and prepare for potential disaster, just to be absolutely ready to go in case maybe you're traveling and you want hard copies of your stuff. There's so many different reasons to get this information documented, but there hasn't been a great way to do it. Now TrustyBook is stepping in to fill that. So try it out while you support the show and use the promo code self-hosted or go to trustybook.com slash self-hosted and get $10 off when you purchase it. Simple, easy-to-use workbook it helps you take control of your digital legacy. Go get started today. Take the 10 bucks off. Support the show. Trustebook.com. That's trusteebook.com slash self-hosted. This is perhaps the least surprising news story of 2024. Wise have confirmed, and I'm talking about Wise cameras here, have confirmed at least 13,000 owners video was able to be viewed through an unauthenticated or unintended viewer. Yeah. 13,000 Wise Camera owners saw thumbnails from other users' video feeds. 1,504 users tapped on those and actually viewed the feeds. Yeah. Wise writes, the incident was caused by a third-party caching client library that was recently integrated into our systems. This client library received an unprecedented load condition caused by devices coming back online all at once because there was a data center outage, I guess, or something. As a result of the increased demand, it mixed up device ID and user ID mapping and connected some data to incorrect accounts. I'm struggling to even understand how that happens. I could understand something getting DDoSed, but how it starts mix, mixing and matching device and user IDs, I struggle to understand how that's possible. But Yeah, it must just be a really poorly written backend, honestly. Yeah, they say they've written their system to bypass caching checks on user devices certain client libraries until it's been stress-tested for extreme events like we experienced. Yeah, Wise are in the fool me once stage of companies now, and I think if they're not on your do-not-buy list, if you already have some, it might be a bit different, but if if you're thinking about buying some new ones, it might be uh, prudent to look at some other options. If your account was affected by this, they do email you. There's like a sentence in there that tells you if it was if your account was impacted or not. So you don't have to worry. They are They are particularly specific but you just have to read all of the email not ideal hey look at that we made it all the way to the boosts without mentioning tailscale once go us hey look at that hey look at that now we got a baller boost from aa ron and he mentions tailscale yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> he says i recently dove into tailscale and now I will never do networking the same again. It's unbelievably simple to use. I was curious about how Chris got his Jellyfin domain name working, though. When I use HTTP colon slash slash Jellyfin, it fails randomly when loading content, but using the IP succeeds every time. P.S. I'm curious to see how you pronounce the city, the name of my zip code. Hint, it is German. Oh, no. Great. Well, the, the thing with Jellyfin in particular is that the clients 
do not like plain HTTP. Yeah. They really, really want you to have a TLS certificate. So I would put money on that being the issue here. You know, and of course that means you need DNS. There's a couple of ways you could do that. The really kind of clunky way is you can point a public DNS name at a private tailnet IP. It will never resolve unless you're on your tailnet. But if something's checking its name, um, well, that might work. All right, so you, so you gave me your zip code here. It's funny. According to Google, it does not exist in Germany. You gave me the zip code for Born, Texas. There, that's what uh, that's what it says. I don't think that's probably true, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it says it's the city of Born, Texas, which has an eclectic menu of international and local favorites, including European and German restaurants. According to Google, I'm rereading the feedback here the boost and i i'm if you can pronounce the city name of my zip code hint it's german i think that the name of of oh it's burn burn <laughs> oh i think, I think that's the that challenge yeah uh all right well it's b-o-r-n-e no it's not it's b-o-e-r-n-e yes how would you say it Bar. i'd say <laughs> i'd say antargos that's how I'd say it. <laughs> Baron. I remember back in the day. All the, all the That's a tricky one, actually. Baron. <laughs> how would a German say it? Burn. So I was trying to, uh, yeah. Burn. Burn. I don't know. I, I don't know. I was just trying to. If you know. know, please write in. That one's hilarious. Yeah, that's, I'm not, that's not my best work. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, it's, I'm trying, but it's just not my best uh, work. It's a tricky one. It is. Yeah. And. I like that it has eclectic menu, including it says on here too, which I never believe this, by the way, if it's anything in Texas, good Thai food restaurants. Um, I've, I have never, I have never had good Thai food in Texas. I've had great barbecue, never had good Thai food in Texas. According to Wikipedia, it's Bernie, apparently. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Let's see how we do with here. Iru comes in with uh, two boosts. Coming in uh, with 51,931 sats. And the first one's a zip code boost. All right. It's from the land of Paraguay. I love the podcast, and I'm also a great fan of some show darlings like NixOS and Tailscale, also Bitcoin and Lightning. I love you too, Edna Mole. <laughs> don't y'all have impressions that file sharing has stagnated? We have NFS and Samba. They're trusty and they are old, um, and they don't really work well over the internet. On the other hand, there's WebDAV. It's slow, and it doesn't respect ACLs, and all files are owned by the web root user. It seems the world is perfectly happy with this, and no one has tried something new. I wouldn't say they're perfectly happy. I mean, stuff like uh, InfiniBand and uh, S3 has come along, as well as a whole bunch of other cloud-related storage protocols, because NFS and Samba didn't support ACLs, like you say, and are kind of old and a bit crusty i i do wish that there was like a samba version 7 or 8 you know that had come along with windows 11 and gave me a real reason to to upgrade things but you know samba being a single core is sometimes a bit a bit of a pain but uh, i mean the, the reality is for me and my my performance here like i've got a 10 gig network i can easily saturate a 10 gig network over samba Maybe you're running a data center where you need 100 gig and you need, you know, direct PCIe connections between nodes and stuff like that. But Yeah. I mean, I, I take his point, though, just like me too. Um, yeah. sharing files over the Internet definitely stinks. Like you're always using some sort of way to link. Um, like sync thing solves it on a smaller scale for individuals. I've, I, I have my own little sync thing empire that I really like. But 
Yeah, I if people this is an area I'd like to experiment with more too. So people have suggestions, boost in for ways to share files and sync files over the internet. I, I really have it solved for myself individually. You know, I'd love to see, and this is a, a Alex feature request to Tailscale. Wouldn't it be cool if you could use your own node storage uh, as like a like a Tailscale file system, and then just like a bin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that'd be pretty nice. I do use Tailscale Send. And the thing that is nice about that, which is a, it's an odd thing, but I find it very handy and I don't know how it works exactly. I mean, I can guess, but I can start a transfer before I go to the box receiving it and tell that box where to save it. And I just love that. I don't have like, you know, I, I can just, it'll start sending and then I can log into the remote host when I get to it, assuming it's a, a long file transfer. And then I can just say, hey, save that file out to here. And it could be like halfway through the file transfer. <laughs> it still goes to the right spot. I love that. Uh, Mick Zip comes in with 25,000. Sat says, I got to boost the show. They got me through the train rides across a rainy northern England. Keep it up, gents. Oh, you should probably read that one. He probably he probably has it with an accent. I, I kind of did a half walking <laughs> with that one. Whenever I yeah. think of northern England, I go to one of two places. I either go to like Lancashire, like Dickie Bird, like a proper uh-huh. Lancunian. I was going to say that's not even a word. <laughs> like I, th- I think of like a, a Lancashire accent or a Bradford accent. I'm going to need a map. Like, you got a map? I'm going to need a map of this. You got a dialect map? These pla- This is the thing about England, right? These, these places are like 50 miles apart, and yet the accents could not be more different between Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, and Grimsby. The, they're all like in a, a horizontal line across the middle of England, and they, they all sound completely different. You know, Clarkson sometimes drops into a northern accent in, in the show. I'm not going to try and do one because I'm very bad at them, but... Have they got rid of the paces yet? If you're riding trains in Northern England, are, are they are they still? There was this whole thing in I think it was the 90s where they took old buses mm. or like bus bodies mm-hmm. and literally threw them on top of a train chassis. Yeah, sure. And they were called paces, and they were supposed to be temporary, but then they ended up being in service for like 40 years or something stupid. And I, I think they were being phased out. I'm not sure if they have yet or not. But oh, I'd like to see that trains in Northern England can be. A little grim sometimes. <laughs> well, then I appreciate the boost even more. Thanks, Mixip. Uh, Network Rob comes in with 20,573 sats. He says, I wanted to send some value back to you guys in addition to my streams, which I always appreciate. I've been listening to you guys for over four years, mainly with the built-in iOS podcast app. I made the switch to Fountain, which one out I was awesome, about eight months ago once I got my wallet built up. The experience has been great, especially knowing that I can support you directly. I love self-hosting, and I always enjoy listening to hear about new projects. Keep up the great work. Uh, if I, th- I think I got the value correct for a Sega boost, 7680 So 19, so together it's 19571 but I'm not getting the Sega connection there. What am I missing? I don't know. What is 7860? Is, is that a, like, Sega? Yeah, I'll do I that for you. Sorry. I do have a classic nostalgia spot for that when I hear the old Sega go off. We're going to talk in the post show a little bit about a, a handheld gaming device that I bought about three weeks ago, just on a whim. It was like $38 and it's called the R36S. And I loaded up Sonic the Hedgehog. And as soon as I did, I heard the Sega. I was like, <laughs> suddenly I was nine years old all over again. It was incredible. Um, I love that. I done I done messed up and I cut off the name uh, for this next one. So I apologize. That's my bad. They came in though with... Uh, uh, Two boosts. They, they had a question about Unify replacement gear. They're not totally dishappy with it, but they're looking for some replacement, something they can incorporate multiple brands. 
Do, you, do we have a go-to suggestion for uh, Unify alternatives? Probably TP-Link Omada is the one I see the most. Yeah. They have a, a similar kind of hosted control panel, control center type deal that I, just, I don't think they're quite equivalent. I mean, it is good though for if you don't need, if you don't, yeah, I just don't think they're quite equivalent. No, I, I haven't used them. I bought fully into about this time last year, the Unify ecosystem. <laughs> I've honestly been very happy since I did like my, my network, since I did that whole fiber thing has just been better than I could have ever hoped for. Honestly. I also, I include their boost because I love this admission right here. It says, I boosted before bragging about my Zigbee networks. I'm really sorry I dropped your name off. Uh, it's been rock solid. But recently, I had issues with two-thirds of my devices dropping off the network. It's happened a few times now. I, fa- I, I have found that the best way to recover is just reboot my coordinator, which is Raspberry Pi, so it's just an SSH away. And then it all comes back in about 10 minutes. How do you normally recover? Well, I, I try turning it off and on again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I do. I'll tell you what I eventually did is I I just swapped them out to Z the ones that really matter I swapped them out to Z Wave devices because I've got some that are that are triggering heaters and if the heaters don't fire my water freezes right my pipes freeze uh, my batteries go below freezing like it's just non optional mm-hmm. um, so I had to go back to Z Wave on those devices but if you look at the Z Wave if you go into the Zigbee integration and Home Assistant there's a visualizer where you can visualize the network layout and that is handy for figuring out what devices are meshing off of each other. And you can usually track it down to one of the repeaters is what's giving you an issue. And you either need to add another repeater in the area or replace that repeater. Or sometimes, instead of rebooting your entire Zigbee network, you could just power cycle that one repeater. So any Zigbee device that is permanently powered, not always, but is generally a Zigbee repeater. So look at that visual map, see if that can help you track it down. Eric D boosted with 50,000 sats with an update on his image server with Backblaze B2 storage via Arclone. So far, he says, good results. I've uploaded my entire 400 gig Google Photos take out to image using the Image Go CLI tool. And it's cost me about $2 a month so far with B2 and 18 years of photos and videos, which is about 30,000 files. The performance has been great. I cache thumbnails on the local SSD, but the raw files and the transcoded videos are all on Backblaze. I've had zero delay opening any files, including videos. You can do that. The next step is my wife account. I that's great. Well, so he must be doing it with Arclone. Yeah, I mean, it, Arclone SO. But the caching—that's great. Having local images cached. That's one of those moments where someone writes in, and you're like, "Hey, thank you for writing in. I've actually learned something from from what you just said to us. I'm actually got some ideas um, around doing some stuff with Olama, which is a self-hosted LLM like you know, local language model, uh, sort of like a local self-hosted chat GPT. And I had a NVIDIA A4000 delivered this week, a, a nice beefy machine learning GPU. Yeah, buddy. And I'm actually hoping to be able to throw my image library at this thing and see what CUDA acceleration I can do with over there as well. So, Boy, if you get a chance to do that, I'd be really curious to hear how it goes. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you everybody who boosted and we're going to cut it right there just for runtime. We try to squeeze as many as we can in, but we do read them all. And we'll put the extras in the boost barn. We had 15 total boosters, and we stacked 300,970 sats. If you'd like to boost in, go grab the Fountain or Podverse app. We're taking in feedback for Fountain, and uh, I have a weekly meeting with the devs right now to give JB community members feedback. So it's a great time to try it out as we make improvements on the road to scale. Fountain.fm to get that, and then you can integrate it with the Strike app and boost away. We really appreciate it. And also, don't forget, speaking of scale, meetup.com slash Broadcasting. we do have 
a lunch planned for Saturday while we are at uh, Pasadena for the Scale Conference and NixCon. It's going to be a good event. I can't wait for NixCon. There's something for me has clicked about Nix. I th- maybe, honestly, it was that episode of LUP that I did with you and Wes and Brent recently, where we just spent the entire two hours talking about Nix basically end to end. <laughs> something has clicked for me. Like, I can, I can actually, I feel, I feel me a bit, maybe a bit like Tank in the in the Matrix. Like, I don't even see the girl. I don't even see the code. I just see a girl in red dress. Or whatever. I'm, I'm not there yet. But on, honestly, like, I, I'm looking at flakes now, and I'm like, oh, so that's what that means. Oh, why, why, why did you do that? Oh, yeah. And there's been a few things that have kind of coalesced. I was reading Mitchell Hashimoto's got a good, pretty good Nix config. He's the HashiCorp guy, or or was. I don't think he's there anymore. Uh, John Seeger, who I think might be coming on a future episode uh, to talk about his contributions of packaging an app for Nix packages as well. He might be coming on a future episode. There's just been this onslaught of, of besides JB, there's been this onslaught of Nix stuff happening. When I go out and talk to people too, it's amazing. Like regular old people just working in the industry are talking Nick's to me now and stuff. It's I thought you meant wild. like you know Jill at, at Kroger or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Regular no, people like in few, the normal world I've, talking about Nick. Had a couple of I've had a couple of like IRL uh, moments recently uh, where I've just been like, wait, wait, you're running Nick's here? Oh yeah, no, it's a whole Nick shop. I was talking to a guy making a piece of hardware that I can't talk about yet on air, and he's the whole thing's built on on Nick's and. Yeah, it's there's it's a phenomenon happening, I think, Alex. We are rewriting all of the Jupiter Broadcasting infrastructure now that Linode have uh, stopped supporting the shows directly. So we're going to be rebuilding everything on top of... On Nix. Nix and a, a, a <laughs> mixture of a few cloud things that have to be in the cloud, and then a, we're going to bring a bunch of stuff back on-premise to, to save costs and stuff like that. So we don't have any concrete plans exactly on what that's going to look like, but at some point we will probably want contributors to help with you know flakifying certain things and and you know modulifying certain pieces of infrastructure so if that floats your boat join our nix nerds element channel Uh, i got some really sage advice in there this week it's a really fantastic resource Uh, so yeah head over to element with a bunch of jb channels over there Thank you also to all our sres our site reliability engineers who subscribe to the show directly through our membership program self-hosted.show slash SRE. If you'd like to sign up, you get an ad-free version of the show with extra content, a little post-show. And Alex teased earlier, he's going to be talking about a cool little piece of hardware for our members. Thank you to our SREs out there. And thank you, everybody who just listens to the Gosh Darn Show and shares it with somebody. We really appreciate all of that. As usual, you can go to alex.ktz.me to find the various different things I do on the internet. Hmm, I'm playing around with Noster a little bit, chrislast.com, if you want to find me over there. Thanks for listening. That was self-hosted.show slash 117.